0: All right, well, we are diving in this morning into a teaching in the Bible that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And I could often say that about sermons because if you've read the Bible much and you've lived in this world much, you know that there is hardly a page in the Holy Bible that doesn't offend somebody, right? Uh, This one's a little different, though. There's a difference between teachings that are tough. for folks outside these walls to hear, and things that are hard even for us inside the walls to hear. And of all of the teachings I've ever come across in the Bible and all of the times I've spent talking to our people and to other Christians uh, who examine the Bible and hear its teachings, I think that what we're going to look at today might be the one that makes folks like us the most uncomfortable. I think today's doctrine might make the people in this room kind of squirm in our pews more than other teachings. But we're going to dive right into it anyhow, and that is one of the strengths of expository preaching, the model that we use here at Calvary. If you've been here a while, you know our normal method is just to go through a book until we're done with the book. We might take a break, but we'll come back to it. And when you do it that way, you have to do the next text or else people will notice that you skipped it, won't they? And so, I could look at this and say, well, I don't think they're going to like this very much, and so we'll just go over that. But then you guys would ask, well, Dave, why did you skip that? And I would have to say, well, I didn't think you would like it very much. And that wouldn't work, would it? And so, we're just going to dive right into it. Now, some of you are already thinking, oh, goodness, where is this going? Where is he going to take this? And I'll go ahead and tell you what we're dealing with today. We are getting to the point in the story of Genesis where Jacob and Esau are born they are twins. One of them is going to inherit and receive the promises of God, and one of them is not, because that's how things kind of work in Genesis. And what God does that makes a lot of us uncomfortable is he declares their destiny, and even who will receive the promises and who won't receive the promises before they are born. Their destiny is written before they're born. A lot of us look at that and think, well, okay, I have a hard time squaring that with other things that the Bible teaches me, like the power of prayer and the power of spreading the gospel. If destiny is already written before we're born and even who receives the promises is already written before we're born, uh, it seems like it kind of takes away from some of those other teachings. And so we get a little uncomfortable. We start squirming in the pews a little bit. Uh, We will find though this morning uh, a lot of balance in that teaching. And we will even find that Jacob and Esau grow up, become their own person, make real decisions and then the funny thing that happens is their real decisions wind up bringing about the destiny that God had prepared for them beforehand. So we're gonna unravel that this morning. We're gonna look at the way that God works in people's lives and as we do, here's what I wanna ask of you, the same thing I would ask of any teaching that is hard for someone to receive in the Bible and that's first, if it's in there, of course we all believe this already, most of us in this room, we gotta believe it if it's in there, right? Uh, But even that is not enough. It's not enough to look at something in the scriptures and say, well, okay, if it's in there, I'll believe it, right? Why is that not enough? Because all of his truth is good. And so if the Lord teaches something, we believe it's good and good for us. So this morning, let's look at what it says. If what it says is true, it is indeed true, we should receive it. And not only that, but rejoice in God's good truth. We'll look this morning at Genesis 25, we'll start in verse 19, and we'll go all the way through verse 34. That means we'll read what we read last week, and we'll read some more also. Verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted, and therefore his name is called Edom. And Jacob said, sell your birthright to me. Esau said, I am about to die of what uses a birthright to me. And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and he went on his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. The words of the Lord. Through that story, our Lord calls his people to trust in his promises and not in our worthiness to receive his promises. There are lots of threads going on in this story, as is often the case with Genesis, complicated storytelling. We're focusing this morning on just one thread of this story. The thread has three different knots in it, and so we'll work through them one at a time. First, before Jacob and Esau are born, the Lord kind of gives this declaration saying, this is their destiny. One of them is going to come out on top, and it's going to be the younger one. Then second, we find that they both make very real choices that bring that exact destiny about. So first we see that God indeed writes their destiny before they're born, but then we see that they are real people who make real choices, and their real choices wind up bringing that destiny about. The third knot in the story is that Jacob and Esau both reveal themselves to be characters who are not worthy of receiving the promise. Neither one of them really should get it, but God does give it to one. And we see there that really none of us are worthy of receiving the promises of God, but instead he gives them by grace and by grace alone. So we're gonna dive into those kind of one at a time there, the first, the second, and the third. I find the first two are so useful in balancing each other out and helping to guide us in the Christian life. The third one, though, speaks the most sweetly. And after we get through all that, oh, there is a gem in the third one, especially for those of us that wrestle with security, Security or insecurity or our own worthiness before other people. The Lord has a mighty and comforting word there for us. So let's dive in here. We'll take the hard one first. You guys ready for the hard one first? We'll get it out of the way in the beginning. Okay, first, uh, we find the first one in the oracle that God gives to Rebecca beforehand. This is the part of the story that people wrestle with the most often. Uh, and what we find from it is God indeed writes people's destinies before they are born even choosing who will receive his promises before they are born. Uh, there's a little setup in this oracle that I need to give you, and then we'll look at the oracle and then how the rest of the Bible unpacks it. So. The story before this is that God has chosen this one man, Abraham, and told him that his descendants would be many, that one of them would conquer and rule, Who would be Jesus Christ, our Messiah, Redeemer. From his many descendants, the nation of Israel will come. And the plot line at this point is essentially a new generation comes up and that promise gets handed down to one person in that generation. So Abraham has both Isaac and Ishmael, but the promise is handed to Isaac. So these great promises of God are given to the heir that comes after them, not to all of the descendants. So each generation, the real question is, who's going to wind up on top? Who is the heir? Who receives the inheritance? And with it, receives the promises of God. This is the struggle that begins to play out even in Rebecca's womb, as these two twin boys are crushing each other and fighting with each other in her womb. Whoever comes out on top of this struggle, whoever is the heir, is gonna receive the promises as well. So it's gonna be, God is one day going to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, or he's going to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which one is it going to be, whoever comes out on top in this struggle? So a struggle has literally the fate of nations in it. Rebecca says, why are these boys fighting so much in my womb, or what is going on? She doesn't even realize that there are twins in her womb. And the Lord says this to her in verse 23. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided one shall be stronger than the other, and here's the prediction, the older shall serve the younger. So the battle is settled before it even really begins, right? The ones that comes out second is going to be the one to receive the inheritance, to receive the house, and to receive the promises of God, their destiny already written. Other passages in the Bible clarify that this is indeed about the full promises of God And even that God is choosing one and not the other when he does this. And I think that's particularly what makes people very uncomfortable about it. For instance, Michael 1, Michael will start his prophecy by looking back on this day and saying, Israel, how I love you so. Even before they were born, I said, Jacob I loved and Esau I have hated, right? Now, the words love and hate meant something a little different back then. The meaning you would take there would be something like, Jacob, I have chosen. Esau, I have rejected. That would be probably the best way to take that meaning. The Apostle Paul then, in the book of Romans, quotes both of these sections and clarifies exactly what was going on there. Why don't we turn together to Romans chapter 9. It's in verse 10 where he quotes what we just looked at and he quotes another section as well. So Romans nine, and we'll actually start at verse six because that will include some of what I said about Abraham, Isaac, the offspring, those concepts there. So verses six to nine kind of clarify that setup I gave you. He says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And this is what I said a moment ago. Not all the children of Abraham are there because he is his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So not every descendant of Abraham gets these promises. It's through Isaac particularly. Verse eight clarifies what that means. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So the promise doesn't go to all of Abraham's offspring. Verse 9 says, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. So it's gone from Abraham to Isaac particularly, not to Ishmael. Then in verse 10, we get into today's story. Not only so, but also Rebecca, when she had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. So verse 11 even clarifies for us that God is not just predicting what will happen, he is choosing. I'm gonna give it to this one and not to that one. And the material before confirms for us, yeah, this is really about the full promises of God. This is not just about who gets the house, who gets the inheritance, who gets all the goods. This is about the promise going down to them. And so we back up and we look at it and we say there's just no two ways around it. Even if we don't like it, yes, God chose Jacob over Esau when they were in the womb before either of them had done anything good or anything bad. The whole of the Bible teaches that this is how it works for everyone. The Bible teaches us about two books that are either symbolically there in heaven or maybe literally in heaven. Psalm 139, David says, and he rejoices in this, he says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Now, is this a literal book in heaven that has the whole story or is this just a symbolic thing? We're not sure. But in the book was the day that you were born The day that you will die, the way that you will die, and the fate of every day that goes in between the two of them. David finds great comfort in this because he says, hey, the universe is not chaos, but God has me in his hand and will protect me. So there's that book there. And many of you are familiar with another book that is there in heaven, either symbolically or literally, the Lamb's Book of Life. You've probably read about this in the book of Revelation, uh, in that book are written all of the names who have come to Jesus Christ for salvation and by faith received the gospel and found forgiveness. If you're a Christian, your name is in there. Spelled out all the way first middle and last, I don't know, but your name is in there. It says something very interesting in Revelation. It speaks of names being written in the book or not written in the book, and in both Revelation 13 And in Revelation 17, it speaks of names either being written or not written in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. And so that means if you're a Christian, your name is not just written in that book right now, but your name was written in that book before the world was ever created. Since the beginning of time, your name was there and it was known just what would happen. Why would that happen? Well, because Ephesians 1 says the very same thing, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So as uncomfortable as it may make some of us, there's just no getting around that it is there, it is in the scriptures, and the Bible teaches it rather plainly. I handle this so delicately, perhaps because my own story involves some of it. There was a long period in my life, multiple years, where I knew the Bible said that, but I just didn't like it, and so I didn't want to believe it. Uh, I thought that if I believed that, if I looked at that and said, yep, okay, Lord, your word says it. You chose us before the foundation of the world, that I would have to be like some of these other people that I had heard teach that. Uh, In my experience, I had heard people teach it, and I guess just to be frank about it, they acted like jerks when they taught it, and I thought, if I believe that, I'm going to have to be like them and be jerks like them. Or I had heard of people that heard a teaching like that, and it minimized their evangelism and their prayer. And I wanted to guard my evangelism and my prayer so much that I can't believe that. Then I wouldn't share the gospel, and I wouldn't pray. And so just for years, I would go through to my quiet times, man, it's all over the Bible, and I would just read it and say, "Mm, I'm just going to go on to the next thing and not worry about that just right now. And there was a morning where I was just sitting there reading it, and it came up in the Bible again, and I just had to say to the Lord, God if this is in here, I'm gonna believe it. Even if I can't harmonize it with several other things that your word has taught me, if it's in here, I'm going to believe it. And some of you may be wrestling through that very same thing right now. And if if that's you, my word to you is just look in the scriptures, you see it there, we've just walked through it there, and to say to yourself, well, Lord, I, I can't harmonize that with everything that I believe, but if it's in your word, I'll believe it and I'll trust that all of your truth is good truth. This is what it means to follow the Lord in faith and say, I can't, I can't see the end of this, but I will trust you at the beginning and receive all of your words as true. So that's our first point. That's the hard one. It gets easier from here, I promise. Uh, that God writes people's destinies before they're born, even choosing who will receive his promises. The second point if you just think of everything I've said so far as one side of a coin, just pretend I'm holding a big dime up here and you got the head side you're looking at. The second point is like flipping it over and looking at the tail side of that coin. Very helpful because it helps us not to go too far with the first one. Many have taken what is there with Jacob and Esau on the early parts and made too much of it and too little of what comes later. The second point is this, what you choose Matters. And we see this because Jacob and Esau both become their own people. We get to kind of watch them grow up in the story. They wind up having their own preferences, their own desires, and then they wind up making real decisions and real choices based on what they want to do. And it's actually those willful choices that bring about that destiny that God had planned beforehand. In some mysterious working of God, they choose exactly what they want to choose, and it winds up being exactly what God had destined beforehand. So we take from that the second point, what you choose matters, because what they chose mattered. Let's look at that together. Let's just kind of walk through some of those details there in the story. So, We left off at verse 24. She gives birth and lo and behold, there are twins, just like the Lord said. First one comes out red and he's very hairy and so they name him Esau. Uh, We actually don't know what the name Esau means except for from right there. It must mean hairy or redhead or something like that. Uh, Afterwards, Jacob comes out and he is already at birth grabbing the firstborn's heel, which tells you a lot about his nature and how he is. He will spend his whole life striving after Esau, trying to get on top of Esau. It will be years later that we'll read about when the moment finally comes and he gets to snag his inheritance from his brother. He comes out already grabbing his heel, and so they name him Jacob, which means heel grabber. Isaac was 60 when she bore them, we see, which we talked about a little bit last week. Okay, then they grow up, and they become very different people, Esau becomes an outdoorsman. He likes to hunt. He likes to work out in the field. And Jacob likes to be inside. So we learn a little bit about what they like and who they are. And they really are their own people doing their own thing. This is all set up for what comes later. Jacob is cooking stew and Esau comes in from the field. Now you have those details earlier, so you can look at that and say, oh yeah, they're doing what they like to do, right? Jacob likes to be inside, so of course he's inside, he's cooking. Esau likes to be outside, so of course he's outside in the field hunting, who knows what he's doing. He comes in, he's exhausted, and what's at Jacob's nature here? What does he like to do? He likes to go after Esau and try to get on top, right? He was grabbing his heel when he was born. Esau comes in famished and hungry, and Jacob says, aha, my moment is here. Now I can get on top. Now I can snag the birthright, the firstborn's right in this house. And so he says to him, cool and calculated, sell me your birthright now. And his exhausted, famished brother says, well, I'm going to die if I don't eat, which is surely an exaggeration. He'd be laying on the floor if that were the case, but he feels so hungry. He thinks it's true. So he chooses to do it. He chooses to place his appetite over his birthright and gives it up, a willful choice that he makes with no one forcing him to do it. Jacob making a willful choice because he wanted that birthright and he went after it. All of this adds up to tell us what you choose, what you do, it matters. You see how that tempers the first point? It would be so easy to say, ah, our destinies are written, what does it matter what I do? But that's not what Jacob and Esau do. Esau does not come in and say, Well, I'm destined to lose my birthright one way or another, so I might as well get a little bit of stew out of it. And, you know, right? No, that's not what he's doing at all. Jacob is not saying, well, I am destined to get on top at one point, so I might as well try it now. I know it's going to happen at some... No, they're both just choosing what they want to do and what they want and what they do matters and makes a difference. So that's where we get our second point, what you choose matters. That's very helpful because it guards us against two forms of wrong thinking that are out there in the world and often come into the church, change the way that we make decisions. Uh, there are big words for them. One is called determinism and the other one is called fatalism. And I'll work through both of them kind of slowly with you. Determinism, uh, being first, is the idea that since God is God and since he has indeed written all of our destinies since before the foundation of the world, well, then what we do must not really matter, right? So it takes it one step too far and says, yeah, so what we do doesn't matter. That's determinism. Uh, This would give us some kind of idea that because God has designed us this way, people are reduced to robots or machines who don't make real decisions. And so why does it matter if I pray? And why does it matter if I share the gospel? And who cares if I choose this or that? God's already planned the whole thing out anyway. And so nothing that I do matters. That's called determinism. And sometimes you do hear that thinking. Uh, a lot of times we will use deterministic thinking, that is the fact that God is in charge, uh, to shield us when we make foolish choices. Uh, you might think of the the man who lives out on the beach either down in Florida or over in South Carolina and he's got his beach hut there and his balcony and there's a category 5 hurricane coming and everyone is evacuating, the government has ordered everyone to evacuate and he is sitting on his balcony Uh, sipping who knows what, a Diet Coke with a little tiki umbrella in it and has his tiki torches going. He's watching the hurricane come and he says something like, "Ah, God already knows the day that I'm going to die, so what does it matter? I'll just stay here and let the storm come. Right, And then the storm comes, blows his house down, and he perishes. He perished because he was foolish and didn't evacuate, right? But we can use deterministic thinking to try to justify foolish choices. "Eh, What does it matter if I stay or go? The Lord's got the whole thing in his hands anyway. No, the Lord calls us to make good and wise decisions. So in some ways, we can use determinism to guard our foolish choices. Another thing we can do when we think like that, right? God's in charge, so what I do doesn't matter, is sometimes we have a choice to make And it's not really clear which one we should do. And so we use that kind of thinking to avoid making a decision altogether, right? Should I buy this house or should I buy this house? There's a really good reason I shouldn't buy this one but also a reason I should. And on the other hand, there's a good reason I shouldn't buy this house but another good reason that I should. It's a toss up, I don't know which one. You think about it for a while, you talk about it with people and eventually, Somebody says, well, God's got the whole thing in his hands, so it doesn't matter which one you choose, right? And so now we don't even have to make the decision. We can just shield our avoidance of decision-making because God's got it all in his hands. Well, no, God does have it in his hands, but we still have to make wise decisions and he still has left it to us because what we choose matters. Some will use that sort of thinking to avoid prayer or to avoid evangelism? you Have heard somebody say, well, you know, God's got it all planned out, so I don't know why I would pray and ask him to change things, right? And so now we're shielding our faithlessness to pray as he's commanded us to by saying, ah, he's got it, he's got it all sorted out. Or perhaps the deadliest of all, refusing to share the gospel because hey, God's already chosen who's going to come and who isn't going to come, right? And so why does it matter what I do? It's already been determined in the first place. When the Lord says, make disciples of all nations. right? He says to bring the gospel out to all of our neighbors. And in fact, if we believe that there are some out there who God is going to bring in, that ought to embolden our evangelism. That means there are people still left out there who are going to come in. And so it's our job to go find them, bring the gospel to all of them, and welcome those who are willing to come in. So that's just a little peek at how that deterministic thinking that's often outside the church can pervade into the church and we can start to use it to guard making bad choices because God's in control or avoid decisions or avoid prayer or avoid evangelism because God is in control. That's one way we could steer the ship wrongly here if we forget that what you choose matters. The other way is called fatalism and it's sort of the atheistic cousin of determinism. Uh, Fatalism is basically determinism without God. Uh, It is uh, the sense that we're all some product of evolution and the decisions you think you're making are just an illusion, it's just a neuron firing here and a synapse here and a brain doing what a brain does because we're nothing but material and things are only gonna react the way that we are going to react. So therefore, our choices are just an illusion. We're never actually really choosing anything. No one has real agency. And in fatalism, there is also not even a real God at the top who's determining this. It's just a machine that is going out of control, you might say. It almost treats us like we're a Chevy, and when you push the gas pedal on a Chevy, well, hopefully it goes, not always, but you know, you get the idea, right? You push the gas pedal, and it goes. Someone treats you one way, and you're going to react the way that you're going to react. There's no real choice in there. That's just an illusion. That's fatalism, and that's what many outside the church are teaching, especially in academies and places like that. Now, I don't think any of us here believe that, not if you're part of our church, because we believe there's a God ruling over all of it. Yet that kind of thinking can creep its way into the church, and you can hear Christians saying things like, well, I can't help it, it's how I'm wired, right? I was, I was born this way, I just do this, and I can't do anything about it. So we'll use that kind of thinking that my body is designed to do a certain thing and it's just going to do what it's going to do and I don't have any real control over it to excuse often our sinful habits. It's just the way that I'm wired, we'll say. For instance, you may be born with a genetic predisposition to alcoholism. Some people are and they're born that way. And they could say, this is how I'm wired, one sip and I am hooked. Yet, what you choose matters. And that means that even if you are born with a disposition like that, if you get drunk, you will be accountable before God because you chose to get drunk. Or you may have a neurodivergence in your mind that pushes you toward narcissism. And there may be a psychologist you're seeing that's diagnosed you, narcissist. And yet... If you act self-centered and don't care for others, you'll be accountable to God for acting self-centered and not caring for others because you chose to be self-centered and not to care for others. So fatalism can often creep into our thinking because we'll say, well, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm just wired like this, this is what I do. And the Lord says, no, I'm setting before you today life and death, choose life. Why would he say that? Because what you choose matters. So that's our second point today. Uh, it, It is that what we choose matters. So the first point, God does indeed write people's destinies. But second, the other side of that coin, what we choose matters because you make real choices. Now we get into what I think might be the most comforting part of the whole thing. If we look at Jacob and Esau as people... And I'm just going to give you permission to just, you can be judgmental for a moment. Normally we can't be judgmental, right? But look at Jacob and Esau, and just go ahead and judge them. Are either of them worthy of receiving God's promises? Are either of them the kind of person that you would say, you know what, of all the people in the world, God ought to choose that guy and give his promises to him? Well, Esau values the promises so lowly that he would rather have a pot of stew and some bread than receive the promises of God. He'd rather have his hunger satisfied to receive the promises of God. And Jacob, the one who does receive it, is cool and calculating and even uses his brother's great moment of weakness to swipe the inheritance from them. He's manipulative. He is calculating. Neither one of these guys are really characters who are worthy of receiving God's promises. And that is where we find our last point this morning. Last point is your worth is not in your worthiness. Your worth is not in your worthiness. We see this in how unworthy a person Jacob is for being chosen, for receiving these promises. And if we're all honest with ourselves, the same is true of us, isn't it? We can look back on what we were before God called us and say, why did he choose me? Why did he bring the gospel to me? Why did I have parents who loved Jesus and taught me his ways and drug me to church every Sunday for my whole childhood, right? Or, or maybe you would ask yourself, well, why, why did God give me that friend Who loved me enough to keep sharing the gospel with me when I kept resisting it? Or why did I wander into church that one Sunday and happen to hear the gospel and believe in it? Why has God given this to me when I am entirely not worthy of it? And the answer is that that's what the Lord loves to do. He loves to choose the Jacobs of the world and give the gospel to them. As time would go on, Jacob's name would be changed to Israel, and he would be the true father of the Israelite nation. It's his descendants that are all Israelites. And very often, God would not call them Israel, but would call them Jacob. And he would do that to remind them that they are all Jacobs. They are all a whole lot like him. And the truth is, for all of us who follow Jesus' ways, we're kind of all Jacobs, aren't we? None of us were worthy of receiving those great promises, and yet we have received them. We see this said really plainly in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 29. Why don't we turn there and read that together? It's one of the most humbling and freeing ideas. I said that wrong, it's 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Paul's going to take this same logic and he's going to apply it to us. Were we worthy to receive the promises when we came? Here's the answer. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring the nothing to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, here's the point, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Is there anyone here who was worthy to receive the promises, who was born of enough noble birth, who had enough earthly wisdom the first time we walked into the room to receive the promises of God now? But what a comfort because God loves to choose the lowest and place them on the top. So if you have ever wondered, God, why me? Why'd you bring the gospel to me? You're absolutely right and even comforted to think thoughts like this. At our house, we eat a lot of tortilla chips. I don't know if you like, or chip and salsa house like we are, Uh, but if you are, you know that in the bag there are all these wonderful, full, unbroken chips at the top of the bag. And somehow, all those crummy ones that nobody wants, they make their way all the way down to the bottom of the bag, don't they, right? And so what happens in our house is we'll eat all of those wonderful top ones and then eventually all you have left is those broken up ones at the bottom, right? And so then I'll leave them there and hope that Emily eats them and then Emily will leave them there and hope that I eat them and the kids will look at them and be like, no, we really don't want that. And we'll all just leave it there and not open the next bag hoping somebody will finish this one off. If you live alone, I know what you do. You look at them, you say, well, nobody wants those so you just throw them away and go open the next one, right? Here's what the Lord did the Lord took his hand and he reached past all those perfect chips and went to the bottom of the bag and said, there's the one I want. And Christian, you are that little crumb of a chip that there wasn't any reason why he would have picked you. And yet he reached his hand all the way down and said, this is the one that I want. If you can receive that, It is the most freeing thing in the world because you never have to prove yourself to anyone ever again. You can walk into college on your first day and you can look around and say, I I know I'm the one mistake the admissions committee made. Right? These other people deserve to be here. I don't know how I got in. And then you know what you can say to yourself? well, I didn't deserve to be a Christian either, and the Lord received me. Then you can go to your first day on the new job and look around at all these people who know how to do this job and know that you don't know how to do this job and think, I wonder how long it's gonna take these people to figure out that I don't know what I'm doing like all these other people know what they're doing, right? And you know what you can tell yourself? Well, I didn't deserve to be a Christian either, but the Lord received me. And when your family and your friends send little subtle signals that say, you know I'm better than you, right? You know, like you're not worthy of being my brother or sister. You know, you're not really good enough to be my friend. We all send little subtle signals to each other like this. When they send it to you, you know what you can tell yourself? Well, I wasn't worthy of God's promises either, but the Lord brought them to me. Christian, never again do you have to prove yourself to anybody because the Lord looks down on you in pleasure. Why? Because your identity is in the promises of God and not in your worthiness to receive them. That's why we sang that line a little bit ago, two wonders that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. Somehow Christians can be unworthy and highly prized at the same time. But to get there, we have to stop trusting in our worthiness to receive the promises of God and instead trust in the promises of God. Now, when you receive that, suddenly Jesus becomes worthy of living your wholehearted life for. We sang earlier, love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Jesus calls great things from his followers. He calls us to forgive those people that we never wanted to forgive. He calls us to serve and love people we don't want to serve and love. He calls us to control our appetites and live in love and in self-control. All sorts of things that we look back sometimes and we say, is that worth it? Like, is is he worthy of doing that? And then we remember, well, I was the little crummy potato chip and he reached in and he grabbed me because he loved me that much. And a God who will do that for you is is worthy of your wholehearted obedience when you don't feel like forgiving that one person and you don't feel like living in self-control and you don't feel like doing all of the things that he has called from you. Let me end this morning just by speaking to anybody who who wouldn't call themselves a Christian and maybe even isn't sure what these promises of the gospel that I'm talking about are. Uh, There are promises that are even available to you this morning. Jesus Christ says to all who will come to me, all who will trust me, he says, my death will count as payment for your sin. And my life will guarantee your resurrection. And not only this, but my perfect obedience to God, the 100% score that I earned on earth, he says, it will be applied to you if you will trust me. And I will exercise my sovereign control from the throne of heaven, working everything about to your good and to the good of your brothers and sisters in the church for all who will come to me and who will trust me. And yet there are so many who would look at a promise like that and say, I know I'm not good enough to receive that. So many who ask, don't I need to clean myself up first before I come to Jesus, right? I'm not like these other people. Almost everybody that I invite to church myself or share the gospel with either thinks that they're not good enough for us or that we're not good enough for them. It's all about who's good enough for who. It's one or the other. Faith comes when we look at our unworthiness and embrace it, and we stop trusting in it. In other words, as long as you're saying to yourself, well, I just need to clean up a little bit and become worthy of the church and worthy of the gospel before I receive it, you'll never be able to come. Not only will you never be worthy enough, but you're trusting in your own worthiness, Faith comes when we put our worthiness aside and say, Lord, I trust in your promises, not in how good I am to receive them. And so that's what I call everybody in this room too. Let's look not to our worthiness, not to how good we are, not to how much we deserve any of this because we do not, and let's look instead to the good and beautiful promises of Jesus Christ in faith. Amen. Let's pray together.